What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Nick Ackerman joins us. This is former Assistant Special Watergate Prosecutor. Nick, uh, as, as one of our Bloomberg Opinion columnists wrote this morning, this is the big one for former President Trump. How do you think this will play out? Oh, I think it is absolutely a devastating indictment. Uh, you just read through the facts. It tells the entire story of what Donald Trump did after the election, straight up until January 6th to try and stay in power uh, illegally. Um, it is definitely a big one. But keep in mind, the other indictments are serious also. If you just look at the district attorney's indictment in Manhattan, um, even though it has to do with falsifying business records, uh, the indictment alleges that he did so basically to defraud voters uh, so that they wouldn't know about his payments of hush money to Stormy Daniels um, prior to the 2016 election. This particular indictment uh, relates to his efforts to lie to voters um, in order to keep himself in power after the 2020 election. So both of these indictments really make neat bookends. And of course, the whole indictment relating to classified documents um, is really separate and apart from the voters and the elections. Nick, tell us about the timing of this and how it relates to the 2024 election. And if, um, you know, winning the presidency again, if that's really Trump's best possible defense here, it kind of seems like it's the get out of jail free card. Well, no question. It's the get out of jail card free here. Um, but uh, the, you got to look at a couple things on timing. Uh, the reason that Jack Smith brought this case just against Donald Trump is to keep the case lean and mean and simple so that he can get this case to trial somewhere around the 70 day period required by the Speedy Trial Act. I think realistically, he could get this case to trial in January or February prior to the DA investigation of um, trial that's scheduled for March. So I think that is part of what he's looking to do to get a verdict, a guilty verdict um, prior to March. Um, secondly, in terms of the politics of this entire matter, um, one indictment coming down after another indictment, sooner or later, uh, Republican senators, House members, um, people who are running for governor on the Republican ticket have got to ask themselves, do they really want to expose themselves to having the head of their ticket under indictment, which will ultimately in the next 10 to 15 days will be about four times? And do they really want to answer questions that are going to be based on specific facts in all of these indictments 
that are absolutely devastating for Donald Trump and will be devastating for the Republican Party members to try to deal with over the course of the next election. Not that he doesn't have enough on his plate already from a legal perspective, but what do we know about what may happen from the Georgia court in, term of, in terms of timing? Because that's also another big election uh, issue for him. Well, exactly. And that one, unlike the one that was just, just came down yesterday, is likely to include a whole number of defendants. Uh, Fannie Willis, who is a expert in the Georgia RICO statute, um, which simply allows her to bring in many crimes as one crime and be able to tell the entire story of Trump's efforts to undermine the vote in Georgia, I think is going to be a real blockbuster in the sense that um, a lot of the people that were named as unindicted co-conspirators in this most recent indictment are going to be named as defendants uh, in the Fulton County indictment. Um, it's kind of interesting because I know that I think that Fonnie Willis has said that she has not communicated um, with DOJ or Jack Smith on this indictment. Um, but this is not atypical of what happens sometimes where certain defendants and certain matters are divided up. And I think what you're going to have here is this federal indictment that goes after Donald Trump himself. Maybe there'll be other federal indictments. But certainly the Georgia indictment is going to include a lot of these same mm. unindicted co-conspirators and more and cover more Georgia centric uh, types of activities. Hey, Nick, you know, when I look at the legal representation for former President Trump, I don't see a lot of white shoe law firms that names that I recognize. Who are his attorneys? Are they any good what do we know about them? Can he mount, in all of these various cases, can he mount a reasonable defense? Well, I mean, that's a real problem for him. I mean, his big problem is that attorneys don't like to sign on with Donald Trump, especially big law firms don't want their names besmirched. Every attorney uh, that's been connected with Donald Trump in some way uh, has fallen into the mud with Donald Trump. Um, secondly, he doesn't pay his bills. Oops. Um, and that is a huge problem if you're a lawyer and you've got to devote <laughs> the amount of time you need to devote to a case like this. You don't want to do it as a charity case. You know, you had mentioned, Nick, about the idea of keeping this lean and mean and just focused on Trump. Um, I was uh, poking around on, I guess we'll call it X now, not Twitter, <laughs> and saw that right. um, Ginny Thomas was trending this morning as uh, possibly one of the unnamed co-conspirators. wonder if you would uh, venture to, you know, think out loud here of who the others might be or if she could, if there's a case that she could be one of them. I don't think so. I mean, I went through the list and pretty much, I mean, Rudy Giuliani is clearly co-conspirator one. Um, the um, uh, uh, Sidney Powell is, I think, co-conspirator three. Um, you've got uh, John Eastman, who I think is co-conspirator number two. Um, I don't see Ginny Thomas being in, in the list there of people uh, that are part of this. Um, I mean, she was on the periphery of this. I don't think she was a major player. She had put in her two cents with uh, Mike, Mark Meadows, um, Donald Trump's chief of staff. Um, but no, I would be surprised if she turns out to be a, a big player in this indictment. Anything about Clarence? Um, I don't think so. I mean, there is a reference there 
where they tried to get um, one of their plans was to try and get an order from the Supreme Court um, at some point. And, and we know that what they were trying to do was set this up so Clarence Thomas uh, would issue an order that would give them some kind of credibility in terms of what they were doing. So I think that's going to come into play here. But again, um, I don't think Clarence Thomas is going to be a big player and somebody to be watching in this case. Nick, people we gotta... to watch are yeah. really Mark Meadows and um, others, uh, the lawyers who uh, were the in-house counsel, uh, Mike Pence. I mean, keep in mind, the witnesses in this case are all going to be Donald Trump um, you know, employees and people that work for Donald Trump. These are not left-wing, crazy Atifa people. Um, this is Donald <laughs> Trump's own, you know, courtry of people. I mean, these are his pals that are testifying against him. Nick, great stuff. As always, I'm not sure there's a better voice uh, on this uh, than Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor Nick uh, Ackerman. Thank you so much for your time for this unfolding issue. And uh, it just seems like it's uh, never ending. There are so many layers it's hard to keep track of. Um, I find some of the helpful reporting, at least for me, when I kind of spend my time looking at this stuff, is just reminding kind of what's out there. Where are we? What stage are we at in these various things? It's so hard to keep track of. And to think that this is somebody who might be elected president in a year, a little over a year from now and trying to keep track of all the charges against him. Um, I'm just as lost as you are. Uh, we'll keep up with it. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. When I saw the news that Fitch downgraded the U.S. government, I was surprised. It just didn't seem very patriotic to me. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you who was not surprised, and that's Ira Jersey and his team. Ira is the uh, chief U.S. Strat uh, rate strategist at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He wrote back on May 25th that, quote, political partisanship causing a rolling debt ceiling crisis and continued deficits well over 3% of GDP doesn't suggest that a AAA rating is warranted. Ira, you were so right here. I mean, what's Fitch? I mean, they're joining some other rating agencies that have already done it, but it doesn't seem very patriotic. What's going on out there? <laughs> yeah, well, so it's been 12 years since S&P downgraded yep. the U.S. from AAA to AA plus, and almost of the week, actually, because that was uh, on or about August 6th that, that S&P did it. Um, so so I, I think they just they saw the uh, the Treasury borrowing uh, estimate from Monday night that came out at three o'clock where the Treasury Department said, hey, we're going to borrow over a trillion dollars just this quarter, just this current quarter. Um, and uh, and we expect to have to borrow a lot more later. So and Fitch 
between that and between the, uh, you know, another debt ceiling crisis that, you know, was averted again at the last minute back in June, um, you know, they just felt that the U.S. is not yet is not AAA anymore. And quite frankly, I can't blame them because under, you know, the, when you look at all of the AAA rated countries around the world, there's not that many. And, you know, the U.S. debt burden doesn't look anything like Germany's, for example, which is one of the uh, one of the only AAA rated sovereigns left in the, in the world. Um, so, you know, maybe if if we were uh, willing to get rid of this debt ceiling problem that, that we keep on having to do every two years, Maybe Fitch would have had a different opinion, but um, you know I, I can't say that it's a huge surprise that it happened. You know, maybe the timing a little bit. We expected it to happen maybe after this morning's announcement, but you know it's still not a huge, uh, not a huge surprise. I don't think markets care very much about that. I think they're the market, the Treasury market, is uh, reacting a lot more to the higher supply that was announced uh, just this morning. Right. That seems like the timing is really the biggest question mark around all of this on the in terms of the market reaction that we're seeing. And um, so you had flagged in your note, Ira, that just came out that um, the Treasury coupons being um, a bit of a factor in this. Um, I was even wondering, too, when um, when credit agencies issue a ratings watch, those are typically resolved in, what, three to six months. So I guess we're kind of coming up on that period. So what do you think was really the principal driver in the timing here? Yeah, so 60-ish to 90 days. I, I think it was really the fiscal outlook that kind of drove Fitch over the edge. Um, obviously, they were thinking about it for, for a while. And it's not unusual for the rating agencies to come out with their new sovereign ratings over the summer. Um, you know, again, like S&P downgraded the U.S. right around the, the debt ceiling issue that we had in 2011. Um, but but the, this is also the time when they refresh their ratings, so their annual review of of sovereign debt ratings. So, so again, like I don't think the... The precise timing was a little bit of a surprise, but I think the general timing, not quite as much, right? So 60 days-ish after they, uh, they initiated their watches isn't that that surprising. The the, the market reaction to your, your issue about talking about coupons, you know, the 10-year um, started to sell off and, and a lot of the treasury started to sell off after the stronger than expected ADP report. But some of the details of the treasury refunding announcement were interesting in that the government decided that it was going to increase the amount of 10-year bonds, uh, 10-year notes that it's going to issue by $3 billion uh, uh, this month, uh, just next week, um, that was a little bit more than I think most people were expecting. We were all expecting increases everywhere. We knew that the government was going to have to do that, but they chose specifically to increase the 10-year more than they did the 30-year, for example. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing 10-year yields um, sell off a little bit more than than, uh, than other places along the yield curve. So, Ira, uh, Liz McCormick of Bloomberg News is reporting this morning that the Treasury said it will sell $103 billion of longer-term securities at its so-called quarterly refunding auctions next next week. And I got to tell you, Ira, if I get a phone call from the Treasury asking me to pony up, I'm going to pass. I got to tell you, a little <laughs> tapped out here. But my question to you is, given this downgrade, will that change who shows up next week to bid on these uh, government bonds? Yeah, it, it it probably won't. Um, you know, the uh, I, I think that the single one of the biggest fallacies that I've been talking with customers about this morning is that there's this idea that uh, that there's a lot of mandates and people who own treasuries because they're AAA. Uh, so most mandates say U.S. government securities, securities of agency of U.S. government agencies, so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the home loan banks. 
and investment grade corporate bonds. So, so even the AAA that can only own AAA or AA mandates, um, they still specify treasuries and agency mortgages as their own asset class. So the ratings are irrelevant for those uh, for those particular uh, instruments. Now, you know, if the U.S. were to be rated to double B or something, maybe that would change uh, the, the way that people uh, change their outlook. But when you look at a country like Japan, for example, they have a much higher debt to GDP ratio than the U.S. They are are slightly lower rated and their their yields on their bonds are significantly lower. Now, big part of that is because the Bank of Japan has been buying a lot of bonds, but they still probably, even without the Bank of Japan in the market, probably wouldn't have yields at 5% or 4.5% and uh, you know similar to parts of the US curve. So Ira, I know that when um, credit agencies are, what they're rating is the credit worthiness of the borrower. And it, it's just coming at an interesting time here when the economy is doing really well and you're hearing all these more calls that you know more people are optimistic that we're going to avert a recession the soft landing case has never looked better you know to someone who maybe is having a tough time squaring the two what would you say to them well, I think there, there's two pieces to this on the fiscal side of things. I think one is we've seen pretty massive wage gains in by the um, household sector when you go back and you look at what happened in 2022 and to so far in 2023. But that has not really translated into significantly higher tax revenues. And so, so because you still have fiscal spending from the um, fr- from the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act as well as still a little bit of the 2021 stimulus still being pushed into the system, you have still deficit that are over one and a half trillion dollars a year and probably will be in fiscal 2024 as well. Um, so unless you wind up, unless that good economy really winds up pushing up tax revenue significantly, you're going to continue to have a pretty not a good fiscal situation. On top of that, you have more and more baby boomers retiring. That's forcing more and more money out of the Social Security system. The Social Security now has to be funded. So whereas, um, you know, just a couple of years ago, that your Social Security taxes went to the people who were retired. That's not the case anymore. It just doesn't cover it. The Social Security taxes that we're collecting today doesn't cover 100% of the outflows of that program. So, So we have to figure out some way either to raise taxes or to raise government debt. Those are the only two ways to get those mandates uh, fully funded. Yeah, I'm starting to pay a little bit more attention to that whole Social Security discussion than maybe I did a few years ago. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Um, Ira, so when we have these um, auctions next week, the government's going to have to pay up more. Well, I guess my question is, will they have to pay up more than they did, say, yesterday before the downgrade? Well, assuming yields stay where they are right now, the the answer is yes. And I think that that's one of the reasons you're seeing the sell off today is is just this idea that, you know, yeah, maybe a little bit on Fitch, but but just the idea that um, we are going to have more supply, Um, you know, next year, uh, next week, we get the three year auction, 10 year and 30 year. And that's a lot of duration. So that's a lot of market risk that the that investors have to absorb. Um, Now, we've seen reasonably decent auctions. They've been, you know, somewhat mixed, but we saw a pretty good 10 year auction last month. So the question is, will that um, will, will that relate today, uh, th- this week? Keep in mind, too, is that you have old 10-year notes maturing uh, on the 15th of the month that were issued 10 years ago. So those, uh, so, so people who own some of those and held them to maturity might think about reinvesting some of that into the current 10-year notes. So refunding auctions tend to be a somewhat different animal than um, 
than the auctions that you get in the subsequent couple of months. And and uh, obviously, this $3 billion larger size, I think, could have an effect. So so I, I, I think your risk, uh, Paul, is that you wind up will see somewhat higher yields at next week's auction because of the excess supply. All right, Ira, good stuff. As always, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief Soccer Strategist for uh, Bloomberg uh, LP, uh, Real Central New Jersey uh, is his club, as they say. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Molly Smith, Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Also doing that uh, YouTube thing, so just head over to YouTube and type in uh, in the search Bloomberg Global News, and that'll or Bloomberg Global Markets or Bloomberg Bloomberg Global News, I think gets it to you. Uh, that'll bring it right to the feed there. So, um, you know, I recently closed on the Jersey Shore Estate, the compound, if you will, and my mortgage had a six handle, and I was not happy. Now I'm looking at the bank rate, thirty year mortgage rate. 7.31%. You got a deal. I got a deal. I got a deal. And but you I don't closed know. a victory. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, now, now what do we do? I mean, what's this market doing? Nobody wants to get out of their house here. Selma Hep, chief economist at CoreLogic, joins us. Selma, give us a lay of the land of the kind of the residential real estate market today in a world where a 30-year fix is 7.3%. Yeah, like you said, nobody wants to move at the moment. And so residential housing market is really suffering, particularly the existing market, because on the new home side, uh, builders and developers, they, they can step in and provide some uh, mortgage rate buy down offers. So so there's sort of a story of two markets still, one where there is no inventory because existing inventory is locked up and the other one uh, where there is m much more movement and that's where, where there's uh, more new, new home construction. Yeah, so we had a story the other day, uh, it was taking a survey from Zillow and looking at um, kind of pegging 5% as the mortgage rate that's the tipping point of if you're below 5%, uh, you're twice as likely to hold on to your home. But if you're above 5%, that's more when you're likely to sell. I mean, it, it, do you have you kind of drawn a line in the sand of where you see people as more likely to lean one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I've seen surveys, uh, a couple of surveys uh, to that extent, showing that five and a half percent is the magic rate at which, you know, there's there would be more uh, uh, people would be more willing to move. So, you know, I mean, think about it this way, you know, 69, 96 percent of uh, existing mortgages are uh, below six percent. So that's, you know, quite that a bit special. of a market. <laughs> Excuse me. And that makes me special being in that four yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah. See? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, I myself locked in at 6.3 uh, in March of this year, and I was very unhappy about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what does new construction need to do here? I mean, is this simply a, a situation where this is an industry that requires more inventory? We need more housing well, yes, that's definitely the case. I mean, when you look at the, uh, you know, trend in terms of new home construction over the last couple of decades, it peaked right uh, into going into the Great Recession, and then it dropped, uh, you know, some 70%, and there was 
trending very, very, very gradually for the next decade. And it didn't really pick up to the pace that it was pre-Great Recession until the pandemic started. So we have sort of uh, accumulated this almost two, three, four million. I mean, depends on, on what estimate you're looking at, uh, a sh a supply shortage uh, until now that we're just trying to backfill at this point. And now we're seeing prices come back up again as well. So even though people don't want to move, home prices are still going up. Yeah, I mean, so this is the thing, you know, sellers are sitting still, but buyers are out there, you know, and, and you know, we knew uh, um, uh, first time home buyers are going to be active, particularly, you know, uh, those that are uh, the huge cohort that's coming on first time home buying age. So they're out there and, and we do still see investor activity. We still see baby boomers uh, wanting to migrate at this point after they've retired. So their buyers are out there and, and there is no inventory. So uh, in our latest CoreLogic uh, home price index, which was actually released yesterday, it showed pivoting of that home price deceleration. So in, in, in February of last or spring of last year, home price uh, growth peaked at over 20 percent wow. and it dropped very quickly to one percent rate of growth uh, a couple of months ago. And now at this point, it's pivoting back up and we're seeing home prices now uh, for four straight months uh, accelerating on a monthly basis at a faster pace than they usually do in spring home buying season. So buyers are definitely putting pressure on home prices because there's more of them out there than there are selling. So I hate to ask this question because I've got a, a bunch of them in, 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 in my family. What do first time home buyers do? What do the young folks do these days? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very challenging for them. I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of them are seeking uh, places where there is inventory. So hence, we are seeing more uh, home sales activity in those markets where, where, with new home construction. And those would be the markets in Southeast and South. You know, Texas always ranks among the top markets with, in terms of new construction. Uh, there is a lot of activity in Midwest, for example, and, and now at this point, Northeast as well, as people are coming back into the office. But I think what they're doing is they're buying, uh, you know, wherever they can. They, they, it may be further from from the offices, further from downtowns, but that's okay now because we can work uh, sort of, you know, we don't have to go in every day so we can work further from the office. So, you know, I think people are buying wherever they can at this point. And Selma, where are you seeing the demand? Is it more in the single family space or the uh, apartments and the multifamily side? Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we always see more interest in single family, particularly as people as households grow, you know, they there's more ki there's kids and, you know, two two person or three person households. So there is always more demand for single family homes. But what's interesting uh, is that the attached uh, housing, so that would be condos, are now appreciating at the faster pa pace than detached homes. And that's because during the pandemic, there was not a lot of de demand for attached homes. There were, people didn't want to be in density and, and close to each other. So now a lot of the home prices uh, for condo type housing is appreciating at a faster pace. It's catching up to all the growth that single families saw during the pandemic. In terms of new home construction, is anybody building starter homes? Because it feels like when I drive around and I do see new homes being homes being built, they're kind of the McMansion, and the builders tell me, well, that's where the profit margin is. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a difficult one because, uh, you know, we talked about this before. It's 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 very costly to build a home at this point. Land is more expensive. Uh, materials are more expensive. Labor is more expensive. So, you know, builders have to find profit margins where they can. Uh, but I think there there is a genuine effort. And given that the demand is uh, concentrated in, in uh, starter homes for, you know, for starter families, uh, I, I think they're genuinely trying to uh, create that type of housing. And so now there is a, a lot more interest in, um, you know, duplexes, uh, two, two to four units or, uh, you know, row housing and, and stuff like that. So I, I do see effort happening in that in, for that type of housing. Yeah. All right, Salma, thank you so much uh, for joining us once again. Always appreciate Getting your thoughts and perspective on the residential housing market. Selma Hep, Chief Economist for CoreLogic. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'll head down to Joe Matthew here. He's Bloomberg's host of Sound On on radio and Bloomberg's Balance of Power on television. He's in D.C. Uh, he talks to everybody that's down in D.C. He's got his finger on the pulse here. Uh, Joe, yesterday was a, a big day for former President Trump. Um, this is federal. Uh, this is Washington, D.C. Is there any yep. kind of growing sense of how this might play out? It's really difficult to tell. Tomorrow's going to be a big day when he is expected to show up yep. and uh, face the magistrate. But it's interesting you know, that, that there's a model for this, because since this is number three now, it, which is remarkable. But there does seem to be a, a feeling here in the Capitol and on the campaign trail when you talk to people that this one just feels a little bit different. You know, we've talked a lot about indictment fatigue, but when you read through uh, these charges, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the government. Uh, it, it's remarkable stuff. I've, I've got the indictment right in front of me here, and it's worth actually reading the document. There's a lot of great reporting on the terminal, and our reporters have been amazing trying to decode everything and kind of unpack everything in here. But the line that jumps out to me, as it did when this first dropped yesterday, each of these conspiracies, I'm reading directly from the text here, targeted a bedrock function of the U.S. federal government the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. That is a remarkable thing to imagine that a former president of the United States is facing this charge, even as he runs for re-election. And Joe, I guess one of the big issues that I think we probably all like to get some handle on is timing. Is this something that mm -hmm. can go to trial before the election or after the election? Uh, you know, um, there's some differing opinions out there. Yeah, we just don't know. Um, it, look, I'm sure the special counsel would like to see this done before the election, but if there's one hallmark, one strategy that is associated with Donald Trump's legal teams, plural, it's delay, delay, delay. He's going to be approaching all of these indictments the same way, knowing that we likely have another uh, to come from Fulton County, Georgia. 
so, you know, it's really difficult to tell what's going to happen as they still are arguing over the trial date for the classified documents case. Now this and then another. And also, how do you run a presidential campaign when you're trying to manage all of these legal angles? One thing we do know is his campaign is helping to pay for those legal teams who are awfully busy right now. And he's going to have to hire a lot more lawyers. Another thing about his campaign, Joe, they're, it's polling very well, um, like, very, like yep, yeah. very much ahead of the pack here. So, I mean, do you see that it seems like, you know, every time that a new charge comes about, this really emboldens the Trump base. You see that? Yeah. This is you think that trend's going to continue here? Probably. I mean, it's hard to see where this ends. If, if history is any guide, you're right. He's going to gain uh, some polling points and he's going to make money on this. Uh, there are a couple of different ways to look at it, though. There's clearly a short-term benefit for him. I mean, the next in line would be Ron DeSantis, and he's trailing Donald Trump by 20 to 30 points, depending on the poll here. So, look, unless something big happens, unless there really is a concern among the MAGA base about this, and there's no reason for us to believe that, then Donald Trump may well be the nominee. The long-term implications, though, when you put him in a, in a general election matchup against Joe Biden... Uh, become a little bit different here. And there are a lot of concerns about how the, the, the four potential indictments and other legal action that he's facing is going to fly here in a general election. It's not a good way to pick up independent voters or expand your own base. But I'll point you back to the poll we got this week from the New York Times and Siena College. 20 percent uh, of, of those Republicans who support Donald Trump, the real core of, of the MAGA base, say they would still vote for him for president if he were convicted of federal crimes. So this is just another sure. day. Why not? Um, Joe, how should or how do you think uh, the other plethora of Republican candidates are going to kind of position these various legal uh, uh, issues for the president in the months ahead? I mean, is this something that they want to make front and center? You can't we can't have this as our candidate. This person is our candidate. Or are they going to try to maybe stay on the sidelines? <laughs> It's funny because you've got the people who are running against him, who are afraid to criticize him, even at this incredible moment of what would be apparent weakness. And you've got different shades. It depends on, you know, the Chris Christie's and Will Hurd's of the world are going to demonize him for this. Tim Scott, though, I was kind of amazed. I have all other statements in front of me here. What we see today are two different tracks of justice, one for political opponents, another for the son of the current president. He's going straight to Hunter Biden on that. Uh, look at Mike Pence, though. I, this, this was the most interesting to me. And Mike Pence is not doing very well. He can't even yeah. get on the debate stage yet, as far as we know. But look, Mike Pence has a lot to do with this case, and he testified in it. Today's indictment, he writes, serves as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Yeah. Let's see how these evolve over time. If they smell blood in the water, it'll get a lot more severe. And anything, Joe, that you're expecting from Mr. Joe Biden, um, he's also stayed pretty quiet on a lot yeah. of these headlines. Yeah, and I think that he'll likely stay that way. Uh, they've kept a real distance or certainly tried to, to build uh, the appearance of having distance between the Justice Department and then even further distance between the special counsel. So I would not suspect that he's going to weigh in on this. It is remarkable, though, when you consider the day that Donald Trump had yesterday, knowing that Joe Biden was on vacation at the beach and went to see Oppenheimer last night. So it's <laughs> kind of two different worlds. Exactly. So one of the interesting aspects of this January 6th indictment is it's in Washington, D.C., Joe. Yes, uh, right. That's a different animal than South Florida. Uh, you said what's the expectation here about how that will, will the president be able to get a jury of his peers? Ron DeSantis doesn't think so. And that's another reaction that we heard from the field. 
He says Washington is a swamp and it's unfair to have anyone stand trial before a jury that's reflective of swamp mentality. Oh boy. Uh, but look, you know, Washington's pretty good at this kind of stuff, actually, and I suspect that they're going to have uh, this together uh, pretty quickly. It, it, it's it, the, the former president won't have much say in that, although his legal team will try to slow this down. In terms of their strategy, we're, you know, we're hearing a lot about the First Amendment today, which is interesting, uh, even though the indictment is clearly about his actions more than the things that he said. When you say pretty quickly, is that before or after the 2024 election? Great question. We just don't know. I mean, the, the special counsel, the Department of Justice, I think will make every effort to get this done before then. Uh, we'll hear a trial date soon. Whether that moves again is another question. They've already moved the date on the last indictment over the classified documents. So I, I suspect that'll be a moving target for a bit. Joe, sound on uh, with Joe Matthew coming up at 1 p.m. Wall Street time. I, I, I got to think this is still in flux for you guys here as we sit here at 11.15. I mean, Indeed. Uh, how are you guys going to try to approach this? Well, you know, we're always building the plane in flight here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, one thing that's consistent on sound on is our great panel. We're going to have Rick Davis with us today. Uh, and Matt Bennett, the a Democrat from Third Way, to kind of get both sides of this uh, to help sort of flesh out what's going on in this case. And we're going to have some smart legal minds. In fact, uh, I heard just a short time ago that coming up at 2 o'clock, the second hour of Sound On, we're going to be talking to John Dean oh. of Watergate fame yep. and be curious to get his historical perspective on this, too. And Joe, just, this is the, the dumb question of the day. And But as we think about the 2024 election on the other side, is, is the Democratic Party, are they okay with Joe Biden? Are they, this is our guy, or is it just, it just be too ugly to try to do anything else? I think this is our guy is the, the idea right now. He's got a 39% approval rating in that yep. new New York Times poll this week. That's up from 33 a year ago. It's still way underwater. Yep. Yep. Half of the Democrats in that poll say they wish they had somebody else. There's a lot of talk about his age, but let's see where those numbers are when there's a real matchup. Everything right now is hypothetical, yep. and look, Gavin Newsom's not coming to the rescue anytime soon. Okay. Joe Matthew, uh, host of Bloomberg Sound On on radio. You can get that at uh, 1 p.m. Wall Street time. And then uh, Bloomberg's Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television. Lots to talk about there. Always seems to be down in D.C. And now with all these various indictments against the former president and, oh, election next year. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's bring on our next guest here because we want to get a sense of kind of what the economic situation. We've got a lot of economic data coming out uh, this week and next week. Uh, Sonia Meskin joins us here. She's an investment strategist, head of U.S. macroeconomic analysis at BNY Mellon. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us here. I don't know. I mean, let's start with Fitch, it's not every day that, you know, your government and the finances of your government get downgraded. Um, as an economist, how do, you, how do you feel about this? It's understandable. Um, Fitch had told us in advance they would be doing this. And it is reminiscent of what the S&P did in 2011. And even in terms of the timing, um, it's not that different. Now, of course, it's less of an event that I believe the S&P downgrade was in 2011. And the main reason being that um, investment mandates have since then been adjusted to uh, allow for um, not only AA, AAA rated securities for majority at least uh, type of mandates, but for US government uh, rating or the equivalent. 
And so I think this will be less of an have less of an impact on the market uh, than uh, the 2011 development did. But that said, it's important to keep in mind why Fitch is doing this, and all the rash reasons that they cited um, in their downgrade are very valid and certainly a longer term concern for investors. And we're looking at right now, Sonia, an economy that's doing pretty well here. That a Fed that might still hike rates, at, you know, one more time, maybe even more than that um, in this cycle. Uh, does this play into the Fed's calculus at all, you think? I think that in the near term, not so much, because you haven't seen an, uh, a strong impact in the markets, I would say. Um, I think maybe the refunding announcement, the larger um, uh, you know, auction sizes, uh, that is probably more impactful for the Treasury's near term. But for the Fed, the biggest concern is uh, you know, inflation, inflation outlook, price stability, and um, employment. So they're going to be paying more attention to those indicators, I would say. Sonia, we're going to get some uh, important jobs data uh, from the government on Friday, but we got an ADP print today. ADP employment change came in well above expectations yet again. What are your thoughts on, on this labor market? For a lot of folks, it's showing surprising resiliency. Yes, and I agree. And I think a lot of this has to do with uh, the structural uh, shortfall of supply relative to demand, um, which may have been exacerbated with the COVID uh, dynamics. Um, it also has to do with a very strong consumer. So, for example, you can see that the consumer is really resilient through and has been through the last couple of years. Um, so, uh, you know, ADP numbers are very, very strong. I wouldn't expect the one-to-one core pass-through to, <clears throat> excuse me, the non-farm payrolls this Friday. Uh, but it is indicative of the trend. You're right. And, you know, we're getting a lot of more people saying here now, Sonia, that the, the soft landing argument is looking a lot better these days. Uh, where Are you in that camp? Or do you think there's even a risk here that potentially people are maybe declaring victory a little too soon <laughs> and that the economy could even re-accelerate? I do think there's a risk of that that is underappreciated by the markets today. I think that the probability of a soft landing may have risen since the last few months, but it's not 100%. And I think that those tales of either reacceleration or um, a more uh, pronounced slowdown um, are underappreciated by the market today. You know, you talked about the timing of the Fitch uh, downgrade. We also heard from uh, the Treasury about some auctions coming up to uh, uh, fund our government. And uh, I mean, boy, interest rates are so much higher it's, and uh, the deficit continues to climb. Uh, when does that become a problem for, I don't know, I guess politicians, you know, we know economists have been calling out this risk here of the, of the, you know, the budget of the growing debt and the budget deficits every year, but now interest rates are a lot higher. So it's a lot more expensive to, to fund that. Sure, it's more expensive for the government to fund itself, and it's going to be increasingly more expensive for the private sector to fund itself, both because more corporates are going to have to refinance into a high-rate environment, and because there may be some crowding out effect from larger government issuance as well. So, Sonia, I wanted to come back to this idea of um, inflation and the economy potentially reaccelerating, and um, what that means you know, for the Fed, if they're going to have to get more aggressive again, um, and how that fits in with all these people now dropping their recession calls. Do you think maybe more delaying the call is the right move? 
Yes, I would agree with that. Um, well, you know, the economy always goes through fluctuations. A, a recession at some point in time is almost inevitable. Um, but the timing may have been pushed out um, relative to, you know, earlier this year. Uh, but I do think we're certainly seeing the seeds of a slowdown, potentially a de just a delayed landing. So, Sonia, I mean, I'm probably in the camp like I've and so many people ask me my economic forecast, so I feel like I have to give it. But, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I said I'm taking recession all, all, off the table. Um, but I, I recognize that it's still out there. But inflation, you know, I'm look, just looking at some of the inflation measures. They were trend, They are trending in the right direction. But one that's not is just kind of oil and energy and gasoline and things like that. And I know that's something that the, the Biden administration <laughs> pays attention to because people feel that you know, immediately in, in their pocketbooks. Are you concerned that in, inflation may have another leg up, perhaps? I'm concerned that it would stay sticky, um, especially uh, core PC versus CPI in the next, uh, towards the end of the year, I would say. Um, and that is because um, rents, which are sort of, uh, uh, rent metrics feed through to the CPI measure with a delay and rent, uh, uh, you know, rent prices started to decelerate last year and we're seeing the effect this year. Um, and I think that is a bigger component of the CPI measure than the PCE measure, which the Fed pays traditionally more attention to the latter. And I do think energy prices are structurally important because even though the Fed pays attention to core inflation, if energy prices stay elevated over time, that is an input cost that is going to affect the prices of goods and services. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your perspective. Sonia Meskin, investment strategist, head of U.S. macroeconomic analysis at BNY Mellon Bank of New York. Address? Of BNY? Yes, Bank of New York. Uh, it's down in the financial Number district. one Wall Street, the best address on Wall Street. Look at in that. The financial services. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Got it to the hut. It wasn't so bad. It's some good times there. All right, Brian Egger joins us here, senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He has the career I wanted, but I had media, which is pretty good, so I got to go to a lot of movie premieres and theme parks and stuff. But this guy goes to casinos, cruise ships, hotels. I mean, it's a scam, and he gets paid for it. He's Unbelievable. He's career out of this thing. All right, Brian, we had, let's start with the theme, uh, the cruise business. Norwegian, this stock got just crushed. Was it yesterday? Um... They had some results. I thought people were still going crazy on the cruise ships. What's going on? I mean, they really are. I mean, I think if anything, the worries were a bit more on the cost side. You know, bookings are strong. People are booking longer cruises, longer in advance. Uh, basically, two thirds of the inventory for this year is already sold. So most of the bookings taking place now are for 24, 25. I think maybe there's a little caution on fuel and operating expenses going forward. There's going to be, because most of the cruises are like sold out for this year, there may be more dependence on what happens with onboard spending. If anything, they were too good with revenue management, yep. booking cruises up front. So I think overall, there's just maybe a hope they might raise guidance. But, you know, in terms of demand, it's there. So, I mean, here's some, some of your research. More than 70% of bookings in the last 90 days for Norwegian are for 24, 19, uh, 2024 and 2025 departures, pointing to a longer bookings lead time and four core, uh, four Q fair gains of 10% versus 2019. Man, that's healthy. 
It seems like, right? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly back at a strong point and they've, they've booked most of this year, right? So, And what kind of, I mean, how much do you, when you're booking that far out, surely you've got to put down some kind of a deposit first, like there, yeah, but are people really even paying for these all the way up front or how does that look from a cash flow there, situation? I mean, you, can, you can track yeah. advanced deposits in advance and those have been really strong and healthy. I mean, the demand is there with people booking both the longer cruises and longer in advance. Uh, you know, occupancy may peak out a little bit below the last peak because they're booking these longer immersive itineraries, but you know, the demand is demonstrable. Boy, I'm just looking at the FA function uh, on the Bloomberg terminal for just Norwegian cruise lines, and you kind of forget a little bit how hard hit they were in the pandemic. And, and I know we talked to you a lot during the beginning of the pandemic because, you know, cruise ships are like the last place you want to be during the pandemic. But, you know, in 2019, $1.9 billion of EBITDA, nice, healthy company, right? 2020, they lost $1.1 billion of cash flow. 2021, they lost $1.8 billion uh, and started to come back. Last year, a loss of six hundred eighty. dollars uh, This year, they're going to make EBITDA, you know, they're going to have $1.9 billion, and then next year, $2.3 billion is consensus. So, boy, there's an industry that really got hit. Talk to us about the balance sheets of this company, because one of the things I remember from the pandemic, one of the first weeks or two weeks of the pandemic, these guys hit the bond market, the yeah. industry. I mean, the balance sheets are much stronger. I'll let our, our, uh, my credit account of our Jody Warrior speak to the specifics, but you know, they definitely are back in much better shape. They did, certainly did tap the equity markets during the downturn when they were not cruising at all, but they're back to a much healthier position. And all those positive yield comparisons are versus 2019. So we're yep. kind of above water where we were back pre-pandemic. And I remember I was actually covering credit um, before I had switched over to the economy team um, during the pandemic, talked to Jody among others. And, you know, it was amazing because we saw companies like Carnival, like Norwegian come to the bond market and had to always do secured issuance. There was no way you were getting a deal done without collateral. And I think Norwegian even put up an island at the Mm -hmm. time to secure his collateral. And I I see Carnival now is doing um, secured debt issuance. What, is that still really necessary that they can't go unsecured at this point? So again, I'll defer to Jody and a lot of that, but you know, they, they've got attractive forms of financing. Generally, they have access to export credit financing. Um, they generally are in a good free cash flow position now that they're back in cruising. And so you know, we've gotten past that point where they were negative EBITDA, we're now, we're now in a much better course. All right, let's talk my favorite business, casinos, baby. Uh, MGM Resorts, which by the way, I remember that when MGM Resorts opened up in Atlantic City back in the 70s, was it? 80, I don't know, way back in the day. Um, anyway, that stock is up 48 or 46% year to date. Did MGM, did they sell the Mirage? Yeah, so they sold the Mirage, they bought the Cosmopolitan, which Wait, is stop, kind of next stop. door. The Mirage, when I started really going to Vegas for business yeah. back in the, Early 90s, the Mirage was the bomb. That was the place to yeah, go. Yeah. They sold it? Built in 89. It's now, you know, yeah. not the newest kid on the block anymore. But, you know, they wow. also sold Treasure Island at one point. But, you know, they bought the Cosmopolitan. So, really, they're kind of That's integrating That's a good trade, it. right? Yeah, I think, I think they're assembling a more, maybe slightly younger uh, Is set the of Cosmopolitan part of the, the new place? Yeah, it's, it's adjacent to city center. And yes. it almost feels like it's part of that complex anyway. So, that made a lot of sense as a as a transaction. All right. I haven't been to Vegas in a while. I don't know how the strip is surviving without me, but (laughs) how are things in Vegas? Is it the business of Vegas? How is it these days? Yeah. If you look at like the second quarter, which we just got some numbers for recently, those gaming revenues are up overall 28% versus the comparable period of 2019. Wow. 
So we're, you know, we're, we're back. flat year over year, but last year was a, a big year of recovery. So Vegas is really back in a significant way. Convention bookings are strong. Uh, you know, so we're a long way off the bottom. You know, it's so interesting. Um, we're looking into this um, on the economy side that apparently Las Vegas has one of the highest employment rate, unemployment rates of any metro area in the U.S. right now, 6%. National average mm. is like 3.5, 3.6 right now. We'll see on Friday what the latest look at that is. Do you have any insight into that? I mean, I generally Maybe? speaking, in particular, the Vegas local markets where Boyd and Red Rock operate, they benefit from a lot of the resort adjacent economy, whether it's resorts themselves or construction activity. So a lot of things I think will be constructive for that economy going forward, whether it's new resort construction, although that's at a slower pace, or the building of the the A's, the A's moving to Vegas yeah, uh, at the former uh, Tropicana site. I think all those things like the Allegiant Stadium, uh, where the Raiders play, the A's moving there, you know, sports, new construction will help. What's sports betting done to? I mean, I, I can pull up an app anytime and lay, lay, lay down a bet. How has that impacted kind of the, the casino companies, that, the, the gaming companies that, that you follow? I mean, historically, for well, the brick and mortar part of the business, historically, sports betting is only 2% of that business. It's, it's principally dominated by casinos. Yep. The online business, um, although Nevada is certainly not the biggest state in that regard, it's, it's, it's been. I don't think it's really taken share away from brick and mortar gaming per se, although the vast majority of sports betting revenue that's generated in states with both brick and mortar and online is coming from online. Right. Can you give us uh, over here, Brian, just a quick outlook on um, the hotel space? No, that's also in your purview. Yeah. So we had Marriott earlier this week. We'll have uh, Hyatt tomorrow. I mean, what we're really kind of seeing here is Domestic leisure travel is still strong, but you know China's coming back in a big way. If anything, international revenue per available room is now growing more quickly than the U.S. And even within the U.S., we're seeing some shift away from domestic leisure travel, which has been monstrously strong, mm-hmm. to a little bit of a tilt towards people traveling uh, overseas to Europe and Asia. And within China, in-country travel is back. So we're kind of seeing the leadership, maybe perhaps in pricing and, and revenue, shift to a little more towards the upscale luxury side and more towards uh, non-U.S. and China. U.S. still strong, but you know I think uh, with the travel restrictions uh, being relieved in uh, China, yep. that's coming back to. And one of the areas you see that I know is also in your purview, which is the Macau, and yep. that's a that is that is the gaming driver globally yeah. what's going on in, in macau you know so macau you look at like the second quarter also you know it's down still pretty sharply versus pre-pandemic like 38 percent decline okay. in the second quarter that's that's largely because we're, we're the travel restrictions in in macau china eased more slowly than north america and the vip junket credit business was pretty much uh banned if you will so now we're relying more on the mass business it is coming back uh, mass is down a lot less than before and the business there was getting stronger. It's just going to take longer because the travel restrictions were, were in place for a long time. And what's the play time. there? If I want to get a play on Macau, is it Las Vegas Sands? So the, you know, there, there's the companies that are traded in and purely exposed there, and then within the North American companies that I cover, uh, among degrees of exposure, you know, Sands has got like the most properties and most exposure, along with Win, MGM. Yep. Uh, is a slightly smaller percentage of his cash flow, but all the big three, MGM, Sands, and Wynn, yeah, have exposure at, there. Looking at the stocks for those, I mean, they're all, for trailing 12 months, they're all up kind of 50%, 60%, Las Vegas, uh, Sands, Wynn. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so interesting stuff. Um, all right, 
Brian Egger, thank you so much. We can talk about anything with this guy. I mean, hotels, crews, <laughs> the whole nine yards. He's got it covered. All the fun stuff uh, Brian Egger uh, covers. And he's not really a gambler either. No, so it's really? Like no fun. Yeah, I mean, but you know, going through like all when those I go casinos? to Vegas, they know I'm coming. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.